Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13. I do have the passage that we'll start with there on the insert. If you need to look in a pew Bible, it's on page 576. And you will see that I am uh, covering several chapters, and I'll explain that in a moment, so you can leave your pew Bible open to that page and then flip through as I give you some passages or follow along in your electronic version, whatever you may have. I do want to say, uh, before I begin, uh, an announcement uh, that's the third one down in the announcements has to do with today, right after the service. It's a fellowship luncheon that is hosted by uh, two of our home fellowship groups, so that would be our small group ministry. And this is also for the purpose of inviting newcomers. If you've just started to come to Redeemer and you're interested in uh, getting to know people, we're interested in getting to know you. And so we have this informal way of getting to know each other. It's right after the service. It's lunch. Uh, We want you to be our guest, so please come. Don't be shy. I know it can be difficult to step out like that, but it's an informal uh, meal, and we'll get to sit and talk together and get to know you a bit. So if you're new to Redeemer, you're welcome to come, and our two groups will love to have you. I had that meal right after church this morning. Today we have come to chapter 13 in Isaiah. Uh, We've walked through 12 chapters of this magnum prophecy of the Old Testament, 66 chapters in total. And you know, there are several mountain peaks uh, throughout the book of Isaiah. In chapter 12, the passage we just looked at last week, certainly one of those mountain peaks as the prophet looks ahead to our perfected satisfaction, realizing heaven through Messiah, and the design for that picture to help us let him be known now. Uh, We've been saved, and so we want the world to know of our Savior. Well, we begin a portion of the book, and there are a few other portions like this, where the prophet goes through kind of a litany of warnings or oracles against the nations, or about some judgment that's going to come. And I wrestled with, should I just go verse by verse through this? It'd be heavy. I mean, ten chapters of oracles against the nations. So instead I decided, because there are repeating themes, much of it repeats each of the different oracles. There's 13 different people groups addressed. And so you see certain themes keep showing up. So I've decided that I'll take six of those main themes. And they're not uh, unique just to these oracles. They're throughout the book of Isaiah. Indeed, some of them are just pervasive in Scripture. So for these ten chapters, I'm just going to take two weeks and go through the six high points of the oracles or the warnings against these nations. Even saying against the nations, it's not completely accurate, and sometimes it's it's an encouragement or a command to a particular nation or a city nation. So with that in mind, I want to begin by reading two passages that are typical of what you see in this section. The first being... Isaiah 13, 11 through 13. This comes in the midst of an oracle against Babylon. That's the next rising empire. There's a city of Babylon in Assyria, which becomes the empire Babylon as well, and one with Babylon when referred to in that way. But really, it's symbolic of any world power that rises really up against God without regard for God. Then Isaiah 14 is that connecting promise of God that he'll always have a remnant, that he'll always maintain his people, really no matter what the national situation may be. He'll deal with nations the way he always does, but he'll also be faithful to maintain his people. And we'll see this cycle through these oracles. Here as I read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, Isaiah 13, 
11 through 13 first. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. At the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Then at the end of this same oracle to Babylon, the first verse, chapter 14, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Let's bow together as I pray. Lord, you are the sovereign one. You are sovereign over history, the history of the nations, and you are sovereign over the details of our lives. Please teach us through these warnings given to the nations around Israel in Isaiah's day. We see there is nothing new under the sun, and people have always done what people do. The dawn of time. Give us wisdom as we study your word. Send your spirit that we might know the truth and be transformed by it. Give us a greater love and devotion for Christ this day. In his name, amen. Uh, My sister and I are just shy of two years apart. And as siblings do, we argued quite a bit growing up. I'm sure some can relate. And I'm sure none of you did this, however. When one of us was receiving some decree of discipline from our parents, the other would often smile in the background. Maybe taunt a bit, have a face of satisfaction as the other one was receiving their just desserts. I do remember, many times this happened, but I remember one in particular time when this was happening and I was in the background letting my sister know of my appreciation for the justice that she was receiving and I remember my father, as though he had eyes in the back of his head, turned around in the middle of what he was saying to her and said, and you're coming next. You know, in this time frame, when Isaiah is prophesying, the nations, and when I say nations, don't think in terms of huge sovereign states. Not really the case in this time. 700 B.C., there were city nations, there were uh, city states, and there were empires that had taken over a groups of these and became known as Assyria or later Babylon. But uh, these groups hovering, if you will, around the land of Palestine where Israel was, for centuries they had watched the favoritism of God with Israel, not allowing anyone to conquer, and giving Israel miraculous victories. No matter what the nations thought of the God of Israel compared to their gods, they knew that Israel maintained a certain, uh, a certain protection or had a protection maintained around them. And this had been breached over the years prior to Isaiah's day, as Assyria indeed comes and takes over the northern half of the kingdom of Israel, once thought untouchable. And all remains is Judah around Jerusalem, really a small, small city nation at that point. At least that's the way it looked to the nations around them. And certainly they were opportunistic, many of them, about their possible plundering of Israel. 
And so while God is doing his work of discipline, he's announcing Assyria will be his hammer of discipline, he mentions the other nations and what will come to them as well as a way of saying, yes, I am dealing with my people Israel, but you're coming next. My judgment's coming to you next. You will not escape unrighteousness because I will always judge unrighteousness. And what we find out is that in the case of his people, he always maintains a remnant. In the case of these empires and these nations, they are lost and they're gone forever. And so these oracles for 10 chapters unpack a bit of God's justice in how he maintains consistency about his character when dealing with sin and rebellion in mankind. Now, I want you to look at your insert because there's some explanation. These aren't uh, places that are familiar with most of us any longer. Uh, In fact, when you look at this map, you're used to seeing Iraq and Iran and Jordan and Syria and Saudi Arabia. That's what we see on the news all the time. That's what we become aware of. If you're in the military, you've probably been to one of these places, uh, maybe multiple times. So you uh, see this map differently than it looks here, which is from 700 B.C. Now, look at the map and, and familiarize yourself with some of this as you hear these names mentioned really throughout the book of Isaiah and in Scripture You have Assyria noted in the middle. That's where Iraq is now, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's symbolic, though, of their regional domination. Uh, They dominated this whole area in the time of Isaiah. But rising in the south, the city of Babylon, which was Assyria's capital, eventually becomes Babylonia and overtakes the Assyrian rule and becomes the power of the day. But it doesn't take long from the east, the Medes, who align with the Persians, They are the next power that rises. It's one power rises and then it falls. It rises and it falls. That's the cycle of things in history. And so these nations, though, become important in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, You can imagine where media is. That's where Iran is today. And you see Arabia. That's where Saudi Arabia is. And a a little interesting contemporary note, uh, the Saudi Arabian people are descended from the Arabian people, whereas the Iranian people are from the Medes or the Persians. There's a reason that they have such disagreement today because they don't come from the same groups. Ethnically, they're different. We think in terms of, well, Islam just took over that whole... Well, they're at odds for reasons that go back centuries. And you see it a bit on this map and how it plays out in history. You notice Moab was just south of where Palestine is. If you can't make out where Israel is to see Jerusalem, uh, and that's, you can imagine, in a modern map where Israel would be. Damascus, now in Syria but that was in the northern part, of, uh, the northern portion of Palestine. In north of uh, Cyprus there, the island is Turkey today. Then you have Egypt down below in northern Africa. Uh, Jordan would be right next to Israel. Uh, so these are places you're familiar with. You see them on the map, but now picture them in antiquity as they are shown here because all of these places had interest and have always had interest in taking that promised land. And part of it is because, remember, they the Israelites were given the land and took it from some of those people who were in Canaan before. So lots of history here. It's complex for sure. But it starts to help us to know this map a bit when we get into the readings of the oracles from Isaiah to the nations, God to the nations through Isaiah. Very briefly, you see the listing of the 13 different focus groups. There are city nations. You will notice on the right-hand column that Jerusalem is mentioned. Uh, Jerusalem at this point uh, was constantly being tempted to align themselves with one of the other nations to fend off Assyria. And God was warning them, don't do what Israel did. Don't do what the northern kingdom did. 
in a line with pagan nations who hate me in my name. Don't do what they did. Trust in me and trust in my promise. And so they are warned in an oracle too about aligning themselves with one of these nations who are enemies to God. In these chapters that we will look at at a high level, God sent warnings called oracles to these nations surrounding Israel so they would be without excuse when judgment fell upon them. But also, here's the other purpose, and it's very important. It was also to remind Judah, who would be hearing these oracles, the southern kingdom that still remained, it was to remind them not to make alliances with these nations whose fates were determined. To trust in the promise that came through Abraham and not trust in the so-called power of Moab or Edom or Egypt. It's a call for the people of God to trust in the promises of God over the promises of the nations of the world. Very relevant for us today. In fact, while these oracles are specific to, a, to particular nations in a certain time period, they contain valuable, timeless lessons about God's character and what he desires of his people. A bit more complex than the usual sermons and how we go through this, but I think that the high level of looking at six major thematic lessons that come through these oracles is our best hope for really putting together all that is here. Now, I won't say too much about all these individual nations or kingdoms, but there's so much interesting about each of them. And what's most profound is how Isaiah gives really vivid prophecy about, say, Babylon. He's writing in 725 B.C. And he predicts with detail the fall of Babylon that will happen 150 years from his time. It's a beautiful picture of God's fulfilled prophecy on the short term. Of course, we celebrate his fulfilled prophecy on the long term with Isaiah, but he does it in this time frame as well, proving he's a prophet of God. Now, let us consider six lessons, and just three will be put before you today. These are six recurring themes through the oracles. The oracles are listed for you, the 13 different city nations who are addressed, or empires, or whatever it may be in their case, people groups, you could say. The very first one is one that runs through Isaiah, through the prophets, and through, indeed, all of Scripture, and that's God's constant and consistent opposition to pride and arrogance among men. It seems like there's nothing God hates more than pride and arrogance in humankind. Yet it's the thing that is most often characteristic of nations and people. And see that this is addressed to nations, but you'll immediately make the connect at how we as individuals struggle with the same thing. If you look at the course of Scripture, right from the beginning you have Adam and Eve who want to be like God. There's a sense of pride. This sinful pride at the very beginning, the fall of man, you could say, is in some way around the pride, uh, the pride that swells up that comes from who? Satan who wants to be like God. So pride propagates uh, arrogance and pomp and celebration of mankind, and it's utterly unrealistic when compared to what real greatness is, God. But in our fallen state, we think of ourselves as greater and are constantly trying to elevate ourselves. And that's what you see played throughout scripture. In fact, in Isaiah, when we got to chapter 9, we noted that uh, perhaps the chief reason for God's disciplining Israel was their pride and arrogance in their disregard for God's promise and reliance upon other nations who they thought were great. 
Then we come to chapter 13, where he's addressing Babylon, the next rising power. Assyria is still taking over the north, and here he is, Isaiah, talking about the next empire and how it will fall because of its pride and arrogance. But the next empire, Babylon, is not meant to just be uh, a nation in a certain time. They're a picture of the world's powers against God. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Babylon's used again as an image of world powers and how God crushes that. But look at the passage again that's on your insert. God opposing pride and arrogance, he says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. On one hand, he uses these nations for his purpose and discipline. On the other hand, he will discipline them for their ruthlessness. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. He has no trouble with laying waste to human accomplishment and civilization to the point of showing his greatness. I'll make people rare. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. He is angry with pride and arrogance. We have a universal rule or law for the nations and for people. God will not share his glory, and so will in his time and with perfect effect bring low those who think themselves too high. It's Spurgeon who said, they that go up in their own estimation must come down again by his discipline. You remember before this time period, Egypt thought itself so powerful. But where are the Egyptians now? But a tour you take to see some falling down pyramids. Assyria. How many Assyrians do you know? Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, they all had epics of greatness they thought would last forever. They all thought that about their empire. Greece claimed widespread domination. Now it's tours of ancient ruins in a bankrupt nation. Rome built an empire to honor itself, and now it lays in ruins. There's an Arab empire. There was a Mongolian empire. There was a British empire empires, nations, all over. They all had something in common when you think about it. They thought of themselves as self-sufficient, self-made, too powerful to fade, and in some way they thought themselves everlasting. And this is where God becomes irritated. Because only God is self-sufficient. He always was. Only God is powerful. And only God is everlasting. The opening oracle against Babylon, one of the great rising empires of Isaiah's day, certainly regarded as such by history. Isaiah 14 contains more of this oracle and this declaration against their arrogance. In verse 13 and verse 14 of chapter 14, you said in your heart, speaking to Babylon, I will ascend to heaven. He knows this insight because he's God, and Assyria is there as the power, but the Babylonians are looking towards this, or the rise of the Babylonian empire, and he describes it, Isaiah, speaking God's word, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. This is what they said. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, some have rightly noted how parallel this statement about Babylon's consideration towards or against God, how similar it is to the rise or the rising of Satan against God. The Satan himself, they say this is a, a parallel description of Satan's fall as he wanted to rise up against God and say that he would be like the Most High. It's interesting how this would be Satan's motive as we already considered that Adam and Eve wanted to be as God and a few generations later they, the inhabitants of earth built a tower in Babel to get in the face of God to say they're greater than God but God in every case and always will it always will be the case will humble the proud and he does so on national levels and he does so in all of these nations' cases, essentially. Uh, he mentions this idea of opposing the proud and the arrogant when he's addressing Moab. Moab, the descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot. Uh, they have become a powerful city nation. But they will be brought low by God through Assyria as well. It says in Isaiah 16 regarding Moab, We have heard the pride of Moab. How proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. This is a common theme for all of the nations addressed by Isaiah. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. And he pronounces his judgment on this arrogance, this pride in the face of God, the God of Israel. Damascus, interesting case, because Damascus is just north. It's where Syria is today. The road to Damascus where Saul of Tarsus became Paul. That place had mingled with north, the north, Israel, to where it was hard to tell the difference. They even had adopted some of Israel's religion, kind of in a, syncret- a syncretistic way that was offensive to God. And so God addresses Damascus as a mixture of people who knew the truth and a people who were from another uh, belief or faith or believed other gods, and they were a mess as a result of that mixture. It says in Isaiah 17, In that day man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, neither the Asherim or the altars of incense. These were mixtures of worship that they had brought in to northern Israel. And they will no longer, when God brings his judgment, be proud of the works of their hands any longer, because they were proud. That's at heart what the problem is, pride and arrogance. In that day... Their strong cities will be like deserted places of the wooded heights and in the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel. And there, there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow vine branch of a stranger. And it talks about what judgment will come. This theme again returns to Egypt In chapter 19, one of the most uh, profound of this section speaks to this ancient world presence and power who thought itself and was viewed by much of the known world at that time to be the wisest of nations with sciences and discovery and all its technology. God says to Egypt, the princes of Zon, those are those wise men from that place, are utterly foolish. 
the wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? The Lord has mingled with her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. That's the picture. What a picture of the humility that God will bring to a proud and arrogant people. It resonates, I'm sure you can see, with all of Scripture when James writes, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God always opposes pride and arrogance. And here's what is so convicting for us, if we're honest. This is so pervasive. Even the most humble among us will struggle with pride in one form or another. It's our enemy. It's my enemy. It's your enemy. It's a constant bringer of strife. It's a, a constant robber of joy. It, it ruins unity in a church or in a, an organization. It's in a family. I mean, pride is the thing that just cripples us, and it stymies the glory of God from going forward because we're trying to bring glory to ourselves, and we are not glorious. So, if you find yourself being able to really point out or figure out who's prideful and who's arrogant, guess what? That's just a show of your own pride and your own arrogance that you can determine who it is who thinks too much of themselves. Why are you concerned about who thinks too much of themselves except for you want yourself to be thought of more too? This strikes all of us, not just nations. It's something that constantly has to be checked. And for the people of God... Of all people, we should be able to have a, a humility that comes from knowing we don't deserve the salvation we have. Of all people, we should have a humbleness that comes from knowing we do not deserve salvation. We do not deserve the favor of God. Grace should make us humble, not prideful. Yet it's a struggle for us as Christians, isn't it? Well, try to imagine why the world is the way it is. If it's such a struggle for you who are redeemed, who know what I just said is true, but struggle with it, like all of us do. Imagine the nations at large who have no knowledge of God or have no regard for God. Their whole life is a striving for pumping themselves up. This is why we have the nations raging as they rage. Now, there's something else I want us to see as a high point that runs through these oracles. It's the second point. While it's true, God judges. He brings judgment to these nations. He brings judges upon sin, like we see from those opening verses. I will punish the world for its evil, no doubt. But while he goes about doing this, another consistent, or another constant in God's working is he maintains his people. In the midst of the most difficult circumstances, he has a remnant. Now, there may be a place called the church, or Christians. That's not necessarily one for one with those who are born again. He has always has a remnant, like in Israel. Just because they were named Israel doesn't mean all of Israel was really Israel. But he maintains a remnant and promises to do so, even the most difficult circumstances, outwardly. And we see it in the promises given through these oracles. While announcing judgment, he mentions things like we see in chapter 14, the passage I read. Look at that passage again, verse 1 of chapter 14. After announcing all this judgment that will come upon uh, Babylon... And the people of God who were at that time, even the southern kingdom mixed into Babylon now, they didn't maintain their identity in that time frame. 
he says as a promise, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. That's during a time in Babylonia where they did not have an identity as the Israelites any longer other than in a very negative way and they were dispersed all over to try to rob them of their identity the same way Assyria did to the northern kingdom. But God says, I will bring back an identity. And guess what he says and adds to this? Because it's the fulfillment of something greater than just what happened for the nation of Israel. It's the fulfillment of the very promise to Abraham realized by what God will do. Look what it says. And will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. That's us. It's his plan to make Israel greater than what Israel is in Isaiah's day, just a nation that's struggling. Israel will be something far greater. It'll be what Abraham always foresaw, that the nations would make up Israel. That's the real picture that God is moving towards, and he lays it out in Isaiah already. Sojourners will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Now, this happened at a, at a certain level when the exiles away from Babylon came back some years later. But in fullness, this is a picture of what God realizes when Messiah comes and calls all people to himself in an even greater forecasting of the final calling of all the tribes, tongues, and nations to himself. The true Israel of God in that sense. The called out ones. In Galatians, Paul writes along these lines, Paul, an Israelite, of course, speaking to a church that was struggling with the, the, a Jewish mindset that was trying to promote Judaism over what real Israel was supposed to be, what the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham was meant to entail. Paul says, but now that faith has come, we, know, we are no longer under a guardian. And he's referring to the, the Old Testament Jewish approach to the law itself and how the law was to come on, that to be a Christian, you had to come under the Jewish law, especially the law of circumcision. And so Paul's writing to the Galatians in this regard. For in Christ, he says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Later in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So it's the Abrahamic promise, whereby God promises to save a people for himself, that's never revoked. Israel's disciplined, but God maintains a remnant. We'll see it in that day, and we have seen it play out through history. And this should give us encouragement as Christians today, that no matter what our outward circumstance is, whether it be persecution come upon us nationally, like is the case for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, God, by his Spirit, will maintain a remnant. God preserves his people in the midst of judgment, whatever that judgment is that he might bring. You know, chapter 19 reveals a tragic demise for one of the most powerful nations on earth. It's a very interesting passage itself. In Isaiah 19, he's addressing Egypt. Egypt will suffer social, economic, political collapse. It all happens. It was happening when Isaiah wrote, and it happened in fullness in the centuries to follow. But God looks forward to a most amazing thing, and he's referring to the Egyptians. He looks forward to a day when many Egyptians will be taken into his fold, the fold of Israel, the true Israel. And they'll join in praising the true and living God. 
I think Egypt, like Babylon stands for world powers, I think Egypt in Isaiah 19 is symbolic of the Gentile world heading to an irreversible decline in its own. But God will call many out from the Gentiles, like you and I, and call us towards himself through Christ, engrafting us into his people. Isaiah sees a day when every tribe and tongue will be represented in the company of the redeemed, praising and glorifying God. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 19. And he's talking to Egypt. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Now imagine if you're Israel being seeing the north plundered by Assyria, Babylon's rising, and now God's speaking this word of promise to Egypt. I mean, think of what Egypt is in Israel's past. But see, God's revealing the Abrahamic heart. The promise he gave to Abraham that would be realized through the Israelites, Isaiah's now starting to say, you've got to think wider than just yourself. That's part of the problem, Israel, is you've been so into yourself in preservation of yourself that you've forgotten the promise of what its end goal is. All the nations to be blessed. Then in Isaiah 19.23, words that had to be mind-blowing to those who were listening in Israel. He says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. It doesn't say, this is the God of Israel speaking. He doesn't say they'll all worship their own gods and worship them together. That's not what he says. It's the God of Israel who is saying, Egypt, my people, will worship with the Assyrians and my inheritance, the Israeli people. It's a picture of the fullness of what was meant in Genesis 12, when God spoke to Abraham. He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those. And by the way, the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12 is culminating. We usually stop with that or we'll hear that. I will make you a great nation. It's like nothing else happens after this. That's not the culmination of the promise. The culmination is, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what we have happening in Isaiah's picture of Egypt, of all places, being blessed by God in this way. A future picture of the restoration that God will bring, that he always maintains his people. I think one of the great motivators for the church engaging in missions across the globe is the promise that God will be the God of all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. We live in a time 
when the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant is being realized. The Israelites of Isaiah's day could hardly imagine Egyptians joining them in worship. The Israelites of Isaiah's day couldn't imagine or didn't even want to think of any Gentiles joining them in worship, on the whole anyways. But that's always been God's covenant plan. We are in a no-lose situation when it comes to missions. Why are we so timid at times? No-lose. We bring the gospel everywhere in word and in deed, and God calls his people from those places and builds them up. And he's been doing it since the first promise has been pronounced in Genesis 3, but in a widespread way since Jesus ascended into heaven, sent his spirit, and has promised us he'll never leave us or forsake us when we go do this. Do we want to align with the wisdom of the world or the promise of Jesus that he'll never leave us or forsake us when we go and make disciples? There's one other high point I want to draw out as we close today, part one of these reflections or lessons from the oracles. It's the last point you see there noted. A recurring theme through Isaiah is God's irritation with his anger at oppression. Oppression that people uh, put upon other people. Um, You could see why this would upset the living God who sees all mankind, if you will, as grasshoppers. I mean, it's not like he has any any problem with with, uh, making us submit or doing whatever he wants to do with us. And then to see these finite creatures treat each other so bad must make the heart of God sick, as it were. Uh, It must irritate to see that kind of uh, oppression come from people uh, who have nothing, of no power, nothing they have as their own that they've earned or have have acquired on their own righteousness or their skills or their abilities or their mightiness. All are worthy to be oppressed by the living God for his righteousness sake, but he shows grace, but yet there's still oppression among people, and it's an irritant to God, and we know this is true because he mentions it over and over again, his angst towards those who oppress, those who are poor, those who are needy, those who are weak. He hates that. It is across the board, God always speaks Uh, poorly of those who have it in their power to show compassion and relieve oppression, but rather do nothing or add to it. And we see it spoken of many of the nations. One of the things he condemns them for is their oppression. You remember back in chapter 10 of Isaiah, he condemned the Israelites by saying, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, make laws that are unjust. And the writers who keep writing oppression with their new laws and renewed activities or sanctions, uh, people are being hurt. To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. I think in one of the more interesting sections of this 10 chapters that we're kind of perusing is a portion of uh, Isaiah's oracle concerning Moab. Now, why is this so interesting? Well, Moab was a descendant nation from Abraham's nephew, Lot. But they were enemies to Israel throughout their history, constantly uh, a thorn in their side. And God would bring, because of Moab's arrogance, he would bring judgment upon them through the Assyrians, the same Assyrians who brought judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel. But what's so incredible is as God is pronouncing judgment on Moab that they're going to suffer greatly for their sins. He says something to Judah, the southern kingdom remaining, about how to treat those in Moab when they are run over by the Assyrians. Listen to what he says. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mountain of the daughter of Zion 
Now he's describing the Moabites. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Amnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade the night at the height of noon, shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Now, there's lots that can be said here, but this is what happens. The Moabites have fleeing refugees because of war, and the Israelites, of all people, their perennial enemy, are supposed to take care of them. That's what it says. Now, I'm not trying to draw a direct connect to things that happen in our day. There's so much debate about whether to take these refugees. Or the, I understand there are complexities beyond my knowledge. I don't get it all. And it does say here, give counsel, grant justice. There is a thinking process about how to do this, how to honor what God says. There is a, a definite uh, series of things they have to take into account. It's not an easy answer. But can we at least agree that believers of all people should be leading a rhetoric of compassion about it? We should be concerned with the biblical priorities more than political ones. And we should think of ways in which we can manifest compassion. Now, if there's an issue that's such a hot-button issue, like the recent one that's come up, fine. You know, there are plenty of refugees who need our help who are in our country now. And what are we doing about that? Because we should be doing something about that. I mean, there's 10,000 people from Nepal that are just... 10 miles north of us right now that many of you have helped with. There are refugees that have come to our nation that of all people, the church should be doing what we can to help. I was blessed by John Carter's uh, address of the Omaha Nation ministry we're part of. We have a nation in our nation that needs help. And of all people, it should be Christians who grant that refuge to those people, especially a nation in our nation. How can we possibly help? And what can we really help? How can we help the name of Christ be established in that place and grow? Certainly it's challenging to us in the midst of these oracles to read things like what we have seen. God has called us to bring mercy to those who are in need. God calls us to be compassionate and offer relief to the oppressed. Our first response to people in need should be one of mercy. You know, there's another little interesting oracle in the middle of this, just three verses long. It's Isaiah 21. It's to the Arabians. The Arabians, and you see on the map where they're located. It's where Saudi Arabia is. But the Arabians themselves were actually more like a, a marauding is a bad word, but maybe a nomadic tribal nation that would avoid conflicts that they couldn't win. I mean, that's pretty smart in most cases, you'd say. And so they, were in the, they weren't all the way up into where uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates were, where the more fertile land was. They were in desert, but they would move around based on where they could flourish the most. And if there was a battle going on with Moab and Edom, they would move to the east. Uh, if Babylonia was coming down from the, from the north to uh, confront them, they moved back to the east. They kind of avoided too many confrontations. They weren't big and they weren't strong, but they were hardy. And God speaks to Arabia, not a word of judgment, but it's very interesting, the instruction he gives, and it aligns with his heart for compassion over oppression. And he says, an oracle concerning Arabia, just three verses, in these ten, verse, ten chapters. 
In the thickets of Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of Dedanites. This is a tribe within them. To the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tema. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. So, Arabians, where you are, you're going to see people pressed because of war. You're going to be, they're going to be pressed because of poverty, and they're going to come by you. Help them. Don't move from them. Help them. Just three verses to Arabia in Isaiah's prophecy about helping people who need it. This is a constant theme, not just in Isaiah, but throughout Scripture. God's call for compassion over oppression. Now, next week, there are three other lessons. We'll see in these oracles how God is absolutely sovereign over the nations. It's a good encouragement and reminder to us. All these moving parts all think they're sovereign, sovereign states. They're all everlasting, but all of them are controlled by the true and living God. We also will see how it's a message to us, a reminder to us as God's people that we should never, ever, ever align ourselves with the enemies of God. The shortcut answer is always the wrong answer, especially when it conflicts with God's promises to us. Even if we feel desperate, we should still stay with the promises of God and not align with his enemies. That's a recurring message through the prophet. And the final message, the most pervasive of all, probably through scripture, along with his, his uh, anger at pride and arrogance would be this. He demonstrates over and over again, even though there are great nations in world history, that worldly wisdom that is devoid of a knowledge of God is always futile and empty. It may look celebrated. It may seem to be wise. It may seem to uh, be the way everybody ought to start thinking now, but if it's worldly wisdom devoid of God's revelation, it's futile. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us so much to consider in these 10 chapters. I pray that you would help us to draw from them those key lessons as we are attempting to do. And I pray that you would help us to apply them. Lord, specifically as we consider uh, the issue of pride and arrogance, please, O Lord, give us a new appreciation for the gospel, especially as we come together in the Lord's day and see so many, hear so much about it and see symbols regarding it. I pray that we would be reminded of our need for humility before you and our thankfulness for what you have saved us from. Help that to be our demeanor towards others. I pray, O Lord, for uh, encouragement for the brothers and sisters here today and the brothers and sisters in the parts of the world right now where they are undergoing terrible persecution. Lord, give them a sense through your spirit that you are maintaining them and their souls and that you will always maintain a remnant and that their suffering is not for nothing, that is for your glory and that you will honor your own name's sake. And Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, uh, hearts with biblical fidelity that we would we would be shaped by what Scripture says, not what Fox News or CNN or the latest talk show person or political figure says. And help us to show compassion. Help us to, our first reaction, to be mercy, because that's the mercy we have been shown. And help us to be merciful to all those who we come in contact with. Give us wisdom about this. But Lord, glorify your name through your people and their transformation by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.